Hello, and welcome to World Canvas, coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Building in Iowa City. World Canvas is produced by International Programs. We're very happy to have you here with us. On tonight's program, we'll be exploring a treatment used for a variety of psychiatric disorders known as interpersonal psychotherapy, or IPT. And we have the great pleasure of being joined by an expert panel of guests who are here in Iowa City just now for an international conference on interpersonal psychotherapy. And uh, we have three of these guests with us in this program. This is the first program in a three-part series on interpersonal psychotherapy, so we hope you'll join us for all parts of this program. The term interpersonal psychotherapy may not be as familiar to the layperson as Freudian analysis or cognitive behavior therapy, but it is nonetheless a growing therapy being used all over the world after its uh, development about 30 years ago or so. And um, our first guests are going to give us an introduction to interpersonal psychotherapy. And I'm going to start with the gentleman to my left, Dr. Scott Stewart, who is a professor of psychiatry and professor of obstetrics and gynecology, as well as psychology here at the University of Iowa. And Dr. Stewart is also the director of the UIHC's Women's Wellness and Counseling Service. And uh, just next to him is Dr. Auguste Omai from France. And uh, you are in the perinatal psychiatry unit at La Tepe Medical Center in France. Very good to have you with us. And at the far end, we have Dr. Matthias Schwanauer, and you are from Edinburgh, Scotland, professor of clinical psychology and the head of clinical and health psychology at the University of Edinburgh. So great pleasure to have you all here with us. And uh, Scott, as I mentioned, I'd like to have you give us that sort of general introduction to interpersonal psychotherapy that will tell us really what this is and what it's used for. Yeah, I'm delighted to. First of all, let me thank you very much for the opportunity. We were really grateful to have the opportunity to speak about IPT and get a bit more publicity as well. Yeah, so thank pleasure. you very much for that. Um, I'd start by saying that we're really interested, particularly in psychiatry and treatments that work well. Uh, the term evidence-based practice is really important, and IPT is one of those. It's a, a practice for which there's a lot of evidence, particularly for depression and anxiety. There's several treatments like that. You mentioned cognitive therapy, for example. Behavioral therapy would be another one, or even psychoanalytic therapy. And one of the things that really makes IPT unique is that its primary focus is on relationships. And, and uh, I suppose it's very similar to politics when they say it's the economy. And mm -hmm. in our view and the view of interpersonal psychotherapy, it's relationships mm -hmm. that are really important. That's what really makes a difference. And so typically we focus on things like grief and loss in relationships, uh, conflict in relationships, and changes in relationships too. Um, in the latter category, for example, the work that we do in our clinic, um, having a baby, yeah. huge transition, has an impact yes. obviously on mom, but the whole family as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, to uh, someone who's not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, it would seem to me that everything is about relationships. And so every therapy must have something to do with relationships. Is that actually not true? Excellent point. I think the difference really is where the primary focus mm -hmm. is, because you're right, I think almost any psychotherapy talks about relationships to some degree. Um, but in contrast, say to behavioral therapy, you'd be more, more concerned about behavior specifically and what drives that behavior. In cognitive therapy, you'd be thinking more about what the person is thinking and how that influences their mood. Uh, in interpersonal psychotherapy, we're much more concerned about the way interpersonal relationships and problems with those affect people's mood, anxiety, and, and functioning generally. You mentioned depression. What are some of the, the uh, areas or disorders or whatever that you might uh, try to um, remediate with interpersonal psychotherapy? Well, depression is a big one. That's where most of the evidence is. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the nice things about interpersonal psychotherapy is it works over the entire age range. So there's some really nice studies and um, work being done now with geriatric patients, for example, uh, people in middle age, younger adults, adolescents. It's even been tested with children down to about age nine. So it covers a huge variety of people. Mm -hmm. The other thing, though, that I think is important to keep in mind is not everybody has a diagnosis. Uh, as an example, we work with a lot of families who have lost children who were born prematurely and don't make it out of the neonatal ICU, sadly. And I don't think it's really fair to say that they have a psychiatric diagnosis. Right. They're, they're distressed. They've had a tremendous loss. And, and we focus on helping them to talk about that, to uh, get some support for that, and especially to extend out into their social support network to get support from other mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So we, we all suffer in many ways. Yeah. Well, um, one of the other things that I understand is, is true about IPT is that it tends to be time-limited, is the term I've, I've heard. Uh, they tend to be fairly uh, short-term treatment uh, regimens. 
Very much so. I, I think uh, even today, people still have in their mind that psychotherapy, you go lay on a couch, you spend two or three years, like Woody Allen, perhaps. Yeah. But in contrast to that, in fact, you're right, IPT usually is very short term. And the, the uh, typical way we describe that is a dosing range. So somewhere between six to 20 sessions, depending on the complexity and the difficulty yeah. the person's having followed by some maintenance treatment. So it's very similar to going to your general practice doctor, uh, where if, you're, if you've got pneumonia, you may go for two or three meetings with your doctor, you recover from pneumonia, and your family practice doctor says, be sure and come back next year. I want to make sure you come back for your well checkup. And by the way, if, it, if the cough comes back, please get in touch with me. I mean, we do interpersonal psychotherapy in exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me move to your colleagues here. I'll start with you, Dr. O'Mike. So you're from France, and you have been involved with IPT for some time. How long has this been a therapy you've been working with? Well, I think I, um, I had heard about IPT um, something like more than 10 years ago, but I, I, I can definitely say that I got into IPT when I met Scott Stewart um, five years ago. And... Um, Maybe it can be helpful uh, to describe what happened because when I met Scott uh, during a, a training, I had something like 20 years of experience uh, with 10 years in perinatal psychiatry. What we call perinatal psychiatry is taking care of uh, pregnant women or mothers and families, couples who had a baby. And um, well, th there are lots of suffering around us, but one of the things that really bothered me as a psychiatrist was that these people in the middle of a human experience, having a baby and having difficulties to connect with the baby or going through a depression, they couldn't really access um, adequate care, at least in France. And you may say, why? Because France is not a poor country, though it is getting poorer. And, uh, <laughs> uh, well, we spend lots of money. But um, uh, let's say the professionals, psychologists, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, uh, couldn't really, co cannot still really coordinate and may not propose uh, an approach that would intuitively suit these, um, these women. So I was really uh, grappling to find a way to work with these women and maybe discovering some things on my own. Just uh, And uh, when I listened to Scott Stewart after having heard once uh, Michael O'Hara, I should absolutely <laughs> give also his name, because we owe a lot to the Iowa team on perinatal psychiatry and IPT. I had the chance to have a training with Scott, and well, that really changed my life. I mean, the proof is that I'm here in Iowa, on Capitol <laughs> Hill. That's a proof how yes, IPT yes, can change yes, your life. Yes. I mean, I said, wow, that, that is so intuitive, and that really may suit my patients. And I think since then, we've been doing so many trainings and so many efforts to disseminate IPT. And it, what I have lived is, I think I see now people coming to our trainings and telling me the same thing. Yeah. I think it is so intuitive and it does suit uh, women in the perinatal period. And it also, um, it is a force against, can I use that word, the alienation that is produced sometimes by other theories used too dogmatically, maybe. Mm. My yeah, do you, do you mind expanding on that a little bit so you can help us understand how, how some other approaches might be off-putting? I mean, any approach can be off-putting. There's certainly a way of using IPT in a dogmatic way, but I think theories matter. I mean, uh, the clinicians, psychiatrists look at what they are trained to look at. Yeah. And if I'm obsessed, let's say, with cognitions or with some uh, unconscious drive, and if I see a pregnant woman and she tells me that uh, she, is, uh, she feels like she's disappearing, she, is, she has trouble in accepting this pregnancy, and this this, this feeling like she uh, does not really exist anymore reminds her how she felt when she was a child and when she was only 10 years old and with her mother that was the feeling. I can definitely go and focus on the past and explore for weeks and weeks on end what went with her mother when he was, she was 10, year, uh, 10 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, IPT teaches us to focus on here and now, on relationships now. So I may absolutely change the focus and tell, ask her, for example, well, 
uh, you explained to me so well what you felt, what you felt when you were a child. But how does this influence influence your mother, your relationship with your mother now? And as a pregnant uh, young woman, you may need some help from your mother. Are you able to get it? How can we think about that? I don't know if you yes, absolutely. That, uh, so theories matter. Mm -hmm. Your way of looking at things matter, mm -hmm. and I think uh, IPT really opens up um, new perceptions. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, we should work to keep it flexible and creative, mm -hmm. and always look for the shades that the lights are producing. Because when you have a light source like here, there are lots of shades. So it's good to have many light sources so that you yes. do not have shades. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, so, Dr. Schwanauer, tell us a little bit about how you use this practice in Scotland and what you're, you, you've experienced. In my, in my clinical practice, I work with adolescents, and something that always attracted me to IPT is not dissimilar to what my colleague said, is sort of it's highly accessible and highly acceptable to young people. Um, so where a lot of psycho, psychological therapies or psychotherapy approaches require lots of education um, as part of engaging young people in psychotherapy, IPT seems very immediately accessible. It makes sense to young people to talk about relationships, mm -hmm. and young people can very readily, readily locate their emotional difficulties um, you know, within the relationships mm -hmm. around them, be it within their family, within their school environment, with friends, mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, Scotland has a national health service, um, so I think there's a particular emphasis on the governance of treatments that we deliver. So as Scott said, the, um, that they're evidence-based, but also that they're delivered in a way that carries with it the, the responsibility and the governance that the health service um, needs to carry. So IPT has a very clear um, structure in terms of how it's um, to be trained, how people become accustomed to it, and um, how it's delivered. Um, so in Scotland, we had quite a lot of emphasis from the health boards and um, the government through the health delivery to make sure that IPT is part of the evidence-based psychological therapies mm -hmm. that should be accessible to all young people. Mm -hmm. We've talked about a couple of times in people's lives that can be critical times of change uh, around a birth, or perhaps a, a death, um, but also adolescents, you know, kids go through so much, so many changes. What range of age do you deal with? Um, Generally, in our clinic, we, we um, see young people from, you know, two, three years to, to 21 years. Um, so it, 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 um, the, whole, the whole breadth of, of childhood and adolescence. And as you, as you pointed out and hinted at, um, change is part of childhood and adolescence. So developmental change, change of environment, change of task. So the, the kind of changes and transitions that IPT particularly focuses on are developmentally normative. And I think that is a great chance what makes pragmatically IPT very accessible to young people is that it makes sense how their life circumstance and their social context contributes to their distress or emotional mm -hmm. suffering or, or, or whatever, but also to the solution. Um, yeah. So it's a great way to, to integrate the, the positive experiences and positive relationships within, within a young person's life in the, in the treatment very actively. Mm -hmm. And so if the number of treatments may range between oh, 10 and 20, say, six and 14, um, fairly uh, limited experience with the, the physician or counselor or whoever is providing the service. Presumably, you can kind of track, I mean, week to week to week or session to session, what has felt like a successful, um, you, you could talk about the moments in this young person's life in the last couple of weeks. And was it any better this time uh, than it was the last time you went through this? Is this, is this a sort of um, thing you discuss with your patients so that you can you know, you review what's gone on and their reaction to what's gone on and uh, whether any of the strategies you've offered have assisted that person? Absolutely. I think part of the immediacy of IPT is that it picks up on interpersonal experiences and events on a week-on-week -week basis kind of thing. So they can directly relate changes in their emotional well-being and functioning to what's been happening in their lives kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And again, it's very easy for young people to report on that, to keep that in mind, to keep track of changes. So when you know, there's been a conflict with, with mum or with a friend, you know, and how that changes and oscillates day to day and how that is reflected in changes in their mood and general well-being, functioning, how well they're able to concentrate is immediately apparent to the young person. Mm -hmm. Where often, like we said before, in maybe some of the more technique-based approaches like cognitive therapy or behavioral therapy, you still spend a lot of time kind of explaining to young people how the mind works. Whereas mm -hmm. talking about relationships, 
they're the experts. You know, they know more about their relationships than I ever will. And that is a great way of empowering young people to actually take charge and be very active mm -hmm. in their psychological treatment. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that there's always a, a need uh, between perhaps any kind of doctor and any kind of patient, but I think particularly someone who's trying to get at some, some uh, depression or psychological stresses, to develop some kind of trust uh, with, with the client. Uh, particularly when you're going to be seeing someone for a fairly short period of time, how does a doctor try to establish whatever level of relationship with the patient? Uh, Scott. I begin quite to take a shot and then ask yeah. you to respond to that mm -hmm. as well. I, I think there's two things I would really focus on, and the first one is just simply listening well. Um, oftentimes when you go to see the doctor, you've got, what, five minutes, a diagnosis is made, and you don't feel listened to. You walk out with a lot of questions. And one of the things that I think a really fine therapist can do is simply listen well and be with the person for a bit to understand what they're like as an individual. Mm -hmm. The second thing um, I think that we've talked a lot about in this conference is really collaborating with. So it, it's doing the work with the person you're working with, whether it's an adolescent, a pregnant woman, or an older adult, mm -hmm. and, and engaging them in the process to help in their recovery. Mm -hmm. And then the kind of follow-up that occurs periodically, what you mentioned with a family practice doctor, you go yes. back for checkups once in a while. Um, going back to the uh, situations you deal with, with mm -hmm. young mothers or families mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. young children, um, what kind of uh, regularity is there to uh, your meetings with these people after the immediate crisis seems to have passed? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, it's a really um, important question because the idea I mean, the contrast between Woody Allen-like uh, uh, therapy. At, at some point, we should get Woody Allen interested in <laughs> uh, the Woody Allen-like Woody Allen -like therapy and, uh, on the other side, uh, brief psychotherapy. Um, well, it is understandable that, for example, for financing reasons, brief psychotherapy is encouraged and things like that. And IPT was certainly designed to be a brief psychotherapy um, the beginning, but now we, as Scott may say, we absolutely have evidence to say that if you do not have maintenance, some kind of contact, there will be a relapse. Uh, keeping the contact is not maintenance therapy in the strictest sense. I mean, for example, I work with uh, pregnant women. Some of them now, I see them before even the pregnancy begins because the networks may spot the vulnerability, so we can meet them before, plan the pregnancy, and uh, plan the care that may be adequate for the psych psychological or psychiatric vulnerability, for example, and then we follow them up with other professionals, multidisciplinary, IPT, interpersonal psychotherapy, is very open and intuitive for other professionals. You do not need to be great psychiatrist to understand, and as Scott may say, it is not rocket science. It makes sense directly. So you absolutely have an acute phase with an intensive follow-up, which is tailored to the needs to the patients. And afterwards, what happens? I mean, why would I cut the contact with the lady that I saw during the pregnancy and I met with her baby? If there's something like depression or risk of recurrence, things like that, we would absolutely keep contact. What does that mean? For some ladies, that may mean a monthly meeting for one or two years and afterwards spacing. For some others, that can be a meeting every six months. For others, it can be just a mail during Christmas. Mm -hmm. But the idea of being accessible, what is the safety plan? And what do I do for a second pregnancy? And and simply, do you still care? Do you still remember mm -hmm. that you followed me when I now my child is five years old, and I have several women that I have the chance to follow up, very gracious and beautiful uh, women. The, uh, the oldest child that I know is 15. So it is really, really great to, to carry the story and uh, to tell the story and tell how your mother struggled and how she kept contact and how she built what mm -hmm. the, the, um, the healthy woman that she is now well, in just our, our last minute or so, Dr. Schwanauer, um, why do you think this is a therapy that people should become more familiar with out in, in any of our countries? Uh, what should we know as people who don't at the moment think we really have a big issue, but we may know someone in our family, we may develop a problem. Um, 
in one minute? Yes, yeah, in think, one minute. <laughs> <laughs> as I said, I think IPT is a highly accessible and acceptable treatment kind of thing. They have very low dropout rates, so meaning that most people who are offered IPT sort of stick with it. Um, it, has a, it has a solid evidence base in a range of presentations now, um, clinically, and, and also research into the maintenance of why we think this is um, working. And I think it's important that people are offered psychological therapies of which we know that they work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Scott, I'll, I'll end with you because we are broadcasting this program really principally to Iowans. Um, is this a therapy that outside of the university hospitals is, is practiced here in Iowa? We've been working very hard to do that, yes. So we have many training courses here. We are working not only with psychiatrists and psychologists, but also nurses, mm -hmm. social workers. Uh, we have some work going on with internet-based treatment delivery systems that we'd like to expand further, telephone-based therapy. So we're doing the best we wow. can to get it across the whole state. Fantastic. I can't tell you how grateful I am you're all willing to be here and share uh, this information with us. This is just the first part of a three-part series on interpersonal psychotherapy. I would like to say thank you very much to Dr. Matthias Schwanauer at RN. Thank you for coming all the way from Edinburgh. And thank you, Dr. Okozomai from France and mm -hmm. Scott from here in Iowa City. Thank you so much, Scott Stewart. You'll be with us in the next segment as well. So um, I am Joan Kerr. This is World Canvas. Thank you for being with us today. Please join us next time. Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas, coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa. Tonight, the topic under discussion is psychiatric treatment called interpersonal psychotherapy, or IPT. And this program is the second program in a three-part series. We hope you'll have a chance to see all three. We got a comprehensive overview of interpersonal psychotherapy in part one, and now we're going to hone in on some of the cultural norms and expectations that may make successful treatment difficult. I'd like to introduce my guests on stage here. Just to my left is Dr. Scott Stewart, professor in the University of Iowa Department of Psychiatry and also director of the UIHC Women's Wellness and Counseling Service. And thank you so much, Scott, for being here. Uh, just next to him is Dr. Mark Blum, who is from the PsyQ Center for Mood Disorders in the Netherlands. And thank you for being here. And our third guest is Dr. Xavier Pereira, who's associate professor and head of the Department of Psychiatry at Masa University in Malaysia. Thank you very much for coming, Dr. Pereira. So uh, Scott, seeing as this is the second uh, part in our three-part series and someone may not have seen the first part, would you be able to give us a very brief introduction to what we're talking about, interpersonal psychotherapy? Glad to. And then let me briefly, again, reiterate, thanks yes. very much for allowing us to have, to have this venue. Um, Briefly put, interpersonal psychotherapy is one of the psychotherapies that works, and that's one of the things we're very concerned about is using treatments that we know work well for people who have mental health kinds of problems. What makes interpersonal psychotherapy different than the other approaches, though, is that it's short-term, typically six to 20 sessions, and it focuses on interpersonal relationships. Uh, relationships are a part of any kind of psychotherapy, but that's the primary focus mm -hmm. in interpersonal psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Thanks for that, for that reminder. Now, what role does culture play in, this, in the application of this therapy and in your relationships with the, the clients who come to see you? We have guests here from uh, countries, uh, non-U.S. countries, but of course we have experience with cultural differences within our own nation as well. Uh, perhaps I'll start with you and ask you to sort of give us a, a little bit of a hint of uh, how, how cultural norms or expectations can sometimes be problematic. Mm, yes. Well, one thing I'd like to point out is that Iowa actually does have a culture. So yes, yes, that's right. an True important enough. part even here in Iowa. <laughs> True. Um, the best way I can put it is that when we're doing interpersonal psychotherapy, we really want to understand the individual. And there's at least five different components to that. One is biological issues, genetics. Mm -hmm. uh, a second one is the social connections that they have. Uh, and then psychological issues would include things like temperament, personality style. 
And then we also focus on spirituality and culture. And, and the culture that people come from has a huge influence on family structure. Uh, consider, for example, the way in which there are different rituals across cultures and spiritual traditions for grieving. Mm -hmm. and those may be very different. And so yeah. in order to really work well and listen well to an individual, mm -hmm. we need to understand what their cultural experience is like, what their expectations are like, how do they grieve that they've had a loss. Mm -hmm. and, and, and not understanding that well, I think, really keeps the therapist from being effective with the person they're working yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, perhaps I'll move down to Dr. Blum and ask you to tell us a little bit about your experience in the Netherlands and the work you do particularly concerning uh, IPT. Well, we, ha we live in a city where about 50% of the population is from non-Dutch origin. That means Turkish, uh, people of Turkish origin, Moroccan origin, or Surinamese origin, which is former colony. Actually, they moved to our city because the queen lived there, and they thought, well, if the queen lives there, it must be a healthy city, which was in itself a very good idea. But we see those groups having trouble adjusting to modern society with a lot of stresses. Uh, the children grow up in a very different environment than their own. So people, um, first and especially second generation, we see a lot of uh, depression and other mental disorders. And so we try to cater to them. One of the things we do is to, to really look to how much are you sort of acquainted and living in your native culture and how much is, is it Dutch. And that transition also makes it um, very good to talk about and to be interested in. We give each of our therapists, we give, for instance, a short fact sheet of some words in native language, some rituals, for instance, surrounding mourning. Not to be too extensive, because you also have to be interested in the other one. But to have some words, people think, oh, well, you know something about my background. Yeah. And, um, and further, we just ask the questions, get involved with uh, people. And to them, IPT makes hugely sense, because even more than the Dutch, they live in very complicated relationships with people living here, people living in their native countries, some things. Sometimes the father has been um, around for, uh, not been around for the first 20 years of the life, suddenly comes back, that kind of transition. So mm -hmm. relationships and talking about relationships and the, um, the connection between trouble in your relationships, your important relationships, and mood disorder actually does make excellent sense. Mm -hmm. We practically don't have to explain the model to them because once you start talking about it, you immediately go into that. So I think IPT is a wonderful uh, form of therapy for, for these groups, but you just have to adjust. Um, if I may have mm -hmm. given an example. For instance, um, in Syrian culture, for a woman to argue with her husband is not done. Actually, it can be a bit dangerous because um, uh, the violence is often uh, there in families. And um, so we have to sort of look for ways in which we validate that she is angry and she has every reason to be angry because he's not there or he's drinking or he's uh, harming the children or what kind of things. So the therapist is very much supportive to the woman and thinks of different ways in which she can express her rightful emotions in a culturally adaptive way, which doesn't mean like for a Western woman to, to for instance, tell him uh, this and that and she, you should do this and the usage of that. Maybe it's a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, for instance, one of the examples I picked up is uh, um, one of my um, patients just stopped cook cooking a meal. So he came home, he expected a meal, and she said, no, you're not worth it. You bring all the money everywhere else, but inside the house, we practically don't have any money to, uh, to feed my children, and the children go first, so you don't get a meal. And um, actually, his family, so her in-laws thought, wow, then it must be really trouble because for her not to cook a meal for her husband, it, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So she sort of indirectly, and also the nice thing was she got support where she didn't expect it. Her in-laws supported her because she really showed them how terrible the situation was by not cooking a meal. So you have to be really creative in, in looking for things uh, in ways that people can express their emotions in a culturally adaptive way. Yeah. And uh, how, how would someone, for example, this, this family that you mentioned here, how would they find their way into your clinic or, or into uh, an IPT doctor's office? Would they be referred by yes. someone? Yes, yeah, referred by the GP. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Dutch system is, is um, it's a bit like the English system. So we have 
mandatory um, insurance for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, the insurance is by private companies, but it's mandatory. So uh, mental health um, help is practically free for people. They have to pay a little fee, but it's practically yeah. free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move now to Malaysia, uh, Doctor, and, and let me ask you to tell us a little bit about some of what you see and how this therapy works in Malaysia. Malaysia is basically a, an Asian country, so our, our population is an Asian population, but it's, it's not just of one ethnicity. Uh, you know, uh, again, we, are, we were a col colonial country. Uh, the English ruled uh, Malaysia for some time, um, and thus we have the Chinese and the Indians. I'm of Indian ethnicity. Uh, so there are cultural differences, yes, but I think there are many things that are common among Asian uh, communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the, maybe one of the greatest challenges that we have in dealing with people with mental health problems is the belief in the spiritual. So if you have mass, mass hysteria, you're not going to call the psychiatrist, you're going to call the spiritual healer who comes in to do his therapy first, and uh, then later some kind of help, uh, you know, from a counselor. Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, psychotherapy is a little new to uh, Malaysians, uh, but many do go for counseling, and we, we have um, counselors in schools these days because of the um, increased experience of stress among children and uh, teenagers in school. Um, that is definitely a, a challenge for all of us. Mm -hmm. um, when when um, Malaysians come to uh, access health care, and especially mental health care, they, they do have problems. There's a, there's a problem with regard to access. Because um, usually they have to be referred for health care to the public hospital. If, you, if they are referred to a private hospital, then they have to pay from their own pockets because mental health care is not covered uh, by insurance companies in Malaysia. So access is definitely a, a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and um, therapy needs to be explained to them. But there are many who are open to therapy today. Yeah. So would you say that there is no great stigma to having counseling or therapy if, if if, if someone were to say, oh yes, I've, my son is, is seeing a therapist uh, or going to an, uh, someone about, about our relationship problems, uh, would, this, would this be something that um, people would feel comfortable talking about in public or is there great variety in the way? Stigma is definitely a challenge. Uh, I think it's uh, something that's a challenge in most countries. Uh, people would prefer to go to see a counselor rather than a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Going to see a psychiatrist would be uh, admitting that you have a serious mental health problem. Right. You know? right. So they are open to counseling, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, psychotherapy is still a little new, except for those who are more educated and who are exposed to uh, different cultures, those who go abroad to study or work, uh, they are more open to it. But I think also the uh, access to what is available on the internet mm -hmm. has made people a bit more aware that uh, therapy can help them and IPT is one of the therapies that are available, though we have a very small number who do mm -hmm. IPT in Malaysia. Yeah. Well, so, so tell us something about some of the challenges in various uh, parts of our country here. That uh, You mentioned some of the issues, for example, in a big, big city like Los Angeles, where there are mm -hmm. so many people from so many different backgrounds all trying to live near one another. Yeah, I think the, there are cultural differences and access differences as well. Uh, even in Iowa, we have quite a few different uh, individuals of different cultural backgrounds and being able to speak the same language has been a bit, big difficulty here. Uh, as you're aware, we have a lot of people who have immigrated from Central America, Mexico. They are native Spanish speakers. Many of them don't speak English. We don't have enough Spanish-speaking therapists. Yeah. And I think we also provide superb care at the University Hospital and other places for those who can afford it and who have good insurance. We do a terrible job yeah. of accessing or providing care, allowing access for those people yeah. who can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so as uh, obviously part of the, the point of a conference like this, training exercises like those, well, not exercises, actual yeah. training to get certification to be an IPT um, a therapist, 
this is something you're doing here, and you obviously want it to be spread much more widely. But um, in Iowa, uh, you did mention that you have nurses and mm -hmm. other kinds of counselors, social workers, and so on, who are taking this kind of training. I, I can only imagine, just looking at US um, news and US history at the moment, we, we have a lot of people who seem, I'm thinking of adolescent young men who, who uh, have decided to make their mark in sometimes very violent way. And uh, the, the, you know, the country calls out, why didn't anybody see this? Why couldn't we tell that there was a problem? And uh, it's not only here in America. Clearly, these things are happening in other places, too. Is IPT one of these therapies that you think could really very effectively kind of hone in on a, on a troubled uh, person and, and uh, you know, help sort through some of these issues before they reach a violent conclusion? Excellent question. I, did, I would have to say that probably for the more severe mental illness like that, it's not the best treatment. Uh -huh. Oftentimes medication is needed for things like mm -hmm. that. However, the idea of screening for that and providing yeah. preventive services would be very consistent yeah. uh, with our approach to IPT. Um, but in order to increase access and make sure that more people get care, we really are trying to train people in other uh, specialties and, and figure out how we can work within the system as it is. Yeah. For example, yeah. providing internet-based services, uh, training visiting nurses yeah. to go out and meet with women in their homes, mm. uh, training people who are healthcare providers like general practitioners or pediatricians to do some screening for us in yeah. first-line care. So our system is very different than either mm -hmm. one of those, but mm -hmm. it is what it is. Yeah. And until we can affect some change, we need to figure out ways to get the services out to people who really need them. Yeah, exactly. And no, this is uh, a process that could involve pharmaceuticals. You may also employ, obviously, psychiatrists. You need someone who had the ability to prescribe drugs. But, but medications are sometimes used in addition to the kind of talk therapy, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A, a great example of that in our clinic. Again, we see pregnant women, postpartum women, and women who are breastfeeding or pregnant don't want to use medicine, and there's good reason not to do that in many cases. So in that case, psychotherapy, IPT, is mm -hmm. often a first-line choice for mm -hmm. treatment. But there's still cases in which medication can be of help. Yeah. And, and we do find from the data that sometimes the combination of the two works better than one by itself. Mm -hmm. so the, the key point, though, is not quickly to jump to medicine, to make a diagnosis without listening and just right. throw medication at right. somebody. It's really to listen well in both of those circumstances mm -hmm. and provide the best treatment for that individual. You told me, when we had an earlier meeting in pre preparation for this program, you told me such an interesting story. Uh, maybe it was an imaginary patient, but you set up a scenario where um, a young woman has just had a baby and is not feeling happy. Maybe it's postpartum depression. Don't know exactly what it is, but she's not happy. She doesn't feel like things are going well. She's blaming herself terribly. And then you suggested that uh, an IPT therapist would, would try to ask, would ask the patient to explain what some of the relationship uh, what the relationships are in the family, and, and then see whether perhaps the mother-in-law has come to live with the family uh, just after the birth of the baby and is right. criticizing everything this young mother does, which, which you know, is not that unusual and, um, and is very, very stressful. And you might be able to help the patient see that, as you suggested, there are, there are ways you can adjust these relationships that will yes actually help to relieve your stress and your depression and so on. Yes, yes. Uh, to give you a concrete example, we were talking about a, a young woman today, really wonderful woman I was working with not too long ago. Uh, she came in initially and said she was feeling really depressed, sad, couldn't get out of bed in the morning, having trouble taking care of her baby. It would be very easy to simply say, well, you're depressed, here, take some medicine. Instead, we asked, well, tell us more. Help us understand why this has come about. And it turned out that she had had a 40-hour labor she had had to have a C-section and desperately wanted to have natural childbirth experience. She was having terrible problems breastfeeding. The baby was colicky. Her husband was very helpful, but her family all lived at a distance, so nobody else came in. She didn't know anybody else in town either. And, and when you hear that kind of a story, you yeah. say, well, yes, that's quite understandable why you're having trouble. And that allowed us to focus on several things. One was to find more support for her. Mm -hmm. So we were able to hook her up with one of our support groups other women who understood what that was like, for mm -hmm. example, uh, help her to get some additional help in because she was still recovering from the C-section. And, and to talk about that experience of not having your expectations met. It wasn't a perfect childbirth. It wasn't natural, and breastfeeding was difficult, but she was still a good mom despite mm -hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's, that's very good. Um, speaking about this uh, spiritual healing, you mentioned a little earlier that that's another element that in, in some cultures is you know, integral to, um, apparently precedes coming to a physician like yourself. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that, about the complex relationship? I think uh, because uh, people don't understand the behavior that, uh, which is manifest in psychiatric disorders. So there's a tendency for people to believe that it's spiritual affliction. Mm. And thus the, the first uh, person that the family takes the ill person to is often a spiritual healer. Yeah. And uh, you know, prayers are said and uh, a di diagnosis is made. Oh, this person has been afflicted by a spirit. Actually, it's a kind of therapy because uh, there's some research that has been done and the person actually becomes a bit better. Mm -hmm. So when, when the person does not improve, then they bring the person uh, for medical help mm -hmm. and psychiatric help. Yeah, yeah. And do you run into some of these, the spirituality, uh, religion? Um, there, there are so many... Um, well, for instance, um, in, uh, many of the people who come from Morocco, they believe in jinns, which are kind of spirits. They can be bad, they can be good, but essentially if somebody has the black eye on you, you, have to, you can suffer from a black, from a, from a bad uh, jinn. And, um, but there are some imams who we sometimes work with, and they uh, explain to it that in the Quran you don't speak about jinns, it's forbidden, it's not a good belief. Um, so he sort of helps those people to get to, to help them moderate that kind of belief because it can be very oppressing to them. Mm -hmm. And also we talk about, well, within uh, the mosque, for instance, do you have any people who really help you with that, who are of a different persuasion and who have a different opinion about that and sort of try to, to be a, give a more balanced view, not to mm -hmm. say you, it's, it's, it's unlikely and jinns don't exist and you should, mm -hmm. of course not, um, but we sort of try to balance it and within their own culture try to seek out people who have a more balanced view of it. Mm -hmm. That sometimes helps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is probably not a fair question, but I, 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 on the one hand, I might like to say, oh, could you tell me about a great success? But I, I might like to ask you, if, if you've run into a situation where you feel continually confounded, you think that you might have, you, you hope that with a given patient you have um, helped provide some possible options, but the situation just doesn't get better. Um, how, how do you handle that? If you have had such a circumstance, wh what do you do? Do you try to, this is supposed to be time-limited therapy, do you extend the therapy or do you propose something else, maybe treatment with medication or? Well, sometimes, yeah. sometimes situations are very complex. I mean, people have um, an abusive uh, husband, have, a, have uh, trouble raising their children or one of the children is on the criminal path. They have a lousy housing, uh, health care problem, et cetera, et cetera. So it's overwhelming. And of course, we can't cure everything then, but you try to aim for this little success in their lives. So maybe you can find out a friend who you're going to, to have uh, to go to the bath together, to the hammam together, for instance. That can be a supportive relationship. You're not trying to cure everything at once, but try to find these little, in fact, these little improvements in the life can make a huge difference for somebody, but can, from the outside, see, seem like something very small. So we try to aim with this very complex situation, we try to aim for these, for these little successes. Yes. Yes, and that can also be very rewarding, but you have to, to really look, mm -hmm. to look for it, mm -hmm. so to speak. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry to say that our time has ended in this segment, but uh, you've been listening to the second installment in a three-part series on interpersonal psychotherapy. You'll find the full series and more World Canvas programming on the Hawkeye Network, on iTunes, and on the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Mark Blum in the middle here, Dr. Xavier Pereira at the end, and Dr. Scott Stewart for joining us in this discussion of interpersonal psychotherapy. I'm Joan Kerr. This has been World Canvas, and we hope to see you next time. Thanks.
welcome to World Canvas. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you this afternoon from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. This is on the central part of the University of Iowa campus, and if you haven't visited before, we hope you'll come and see this lovely room that we're in. Uh, today we are um, talking about interpersonal psychotherapy, and this is the third program in a three-part series on IPT, or interpersonal psychotherapy. We got a comprehensive overview of interpersonal psychotherapy in the first segment of the program. In the second uh, part, we looked at challenges to uh, the treatment uh, based on many things, some of them cultural, some of them spiritual. And here in the third segment, our guests are going to compare three healthcare systems and the psychiatric treatments available within those healthcare systems and how patients negotiate those systems. So uh, joining me here, just to my left, are uh, Dr. Scott Stewart from our University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Dr. Stewart is a professor in the UI Department of Psychiatry and also the director of the UIHC Women's Wellness and Counseling Service. So thank you, Scott, for your work with us this afternoon. Uh, just next to Scott is Dr. Rebecca Ray. Very good to have you here. Thank you for uh, having me. Yes, Rebecca is a senior research officer and lecturer in psychiatry and addiction medicine in the Australian National University Medical School in Canberra, Australia. So long trip for you, but thank you for coming. <laughs> and at the end, we have Dr. Simon Patri, uh, head of the Somatic Therapy Unit and IPT program at the Mental Health Institute of Quebec, also associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Laval University, Quebec, and Montreal University. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. To yes, yes. Uh, so because this is the third part in our series, and some people may not have seen the earlier segments, I wonder, Scott, if you could give us a very quick introduction to interpersonal psychotherapy. Sure, sure. In a nutshell, interpersonal psychotherapy is an evidence-based practice. There's a lot of evidence that it works well. And it also is a therapy that allows the therapist to focus on the individual and get to know them well. The basis for IPT is really that interpersonal relationships and the difficulty people have in those have a big impact on the way they function and on their mood. Mm -hmm. And that by helping the person to work through grief and loss issues, uh, disputes they might be having with somebody else, or transitions in life, that we can help them regain yeah. functioning and recover quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, as I mentioned in this part of the program, we're going to talk about our system here in the United States, or various versions of the healthcare system that currently exist, and, and then uh, look at the Australian and the Canadian uh, healthcare systems to see what's available to people, how do people pay for it, uh, what kind of access is there. Um, perhaps we should start a little bit with what you see here in your practice at, at uh, the University of Iowa. Well, first I would say that the IPT model works well because it's typically time limited for an acute problem. So we often talk about a dosing range of about six to 20 sessions. Mm -hmm. And because we have so many people and so few providers, even in Iowa, <laughs> that model works pretty well. It helps us to treat people quickly, help them recover, and then provide some maintenance treatment afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, we lack, especially in rural parts of Iowa, sufficient providers in psychiatry, psychology. So. We've tried to extend some of the uh, provision of treatment, especially to pregnant and postpartum women, my area of interest, uh, by training other health professionals to do that. Social workers, nurses, uh, family practice doctors, so that we can extend that to people who might not be able to access the care, mm -hmm. but we really do lack resources here. Mm -hmm. Well, and as, as many of us know, or people in the states know that there is a new healthcare system that, that is now um, being built, or it's a revision that's come in the last couple of years, and we'll see more and more changes in the next few years. Um, obviously, payment for healthcare is a big issue, and sometimes some of the people who, who need it most desperately can least afford to pay for it. Yes. Um, I imagine this is a personal challenge, you know, an individual <laughs> physician's challenge. You must, that's, that makes one very unhappy, I'm sure. But um, do, you, do you see any improvements down the road with this, the new system we have coming in? Do you think there will be a greater opportunity for um, people who need some kind of care to get it and pay for it? I think the, in the United States we have a superb uh, care system for people who are able to afford it and get mm -hmm. insurance, but the public sector is really lacking. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we just see a small part of that picture here in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're involved in a project in Los Angeles, and it, it, the level of poverty and difficulty in accessing care is just immense. But even here in Iowa, there are a lot of underserved people. We have a lot of undocumented people, yeah. for example, who are afraid to come in for services yeah. for that reason. We have many, many people who are uninsured or underinsured, mm -hmm. and Iowa is relatively unique among states in the United States because mental health care is actually separated from medical care right. for people on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. and so. 
there are two separate systems rather than being a well-integrated medical and mm -hmm. psychiatric system, mm -hmm. and that's been a hindrance as well. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear so much about it every, every day. Um, currently, certainly for the last year or so, there have been so many national tragedies that have happened, and there's so much talk about, oh, we need to be thinking more about mental health care. We need to be providing more mm -hmm. mental health care to people, more assessments in the schools, yeah, yeah. more community um, uh, clinics and whatnot. But finding the funding and the, and the resources is always the issue. Very much so. But I think uh, it would be an incredibly wise investment, particularly for preventive care as well. And again, to use an example from our clinical work, if we can treat a woman during pregnancy or postpartum, we get uh, what I would call a twofer. Because um, we can have a huge impact on the health of the baby as well, not to mention the impact on the rest of her family. Yeah, sure. So investment in mental health care during that time period as well as during the rest of the lifespan would be really well spent. Mm -hmm. And there's great evidence that if you help people treat depression or anxiety, their medical outcomes are better mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Ray, let me ask you something about Australia. How, how do people access psychiatric help in Australia? Well, I think um, probably compared to the US, um, uh, Australia is a lot more accessible in terms of mental health care and affordable. Um, so, for instance, well, we do have universal health care, so we pay a little bit extra in our taxes for those that are on an income for, to cover Medicare. Um, and so that means when we have urgent problems and we have to get to the hospital um, and you're in a crisis, you, you don't have that extra worry yeah. that um, of the cost to you, you've just got the worry of the crisis that you're dealing with as a family. So I think that's really important. Um, but in, uh, the really important thing about Australia is we do have universal health care. But in the last decade, there's been some great advances in mental health affordability mm. and accessibility. Um, we've, uh, we've had a, a fairly senior politician really decide to commit himself to raising awareness about mental health and... Uh, uh, for young people, for older Australians, um, initially a focus on depression, but now it's broadened to anxiety. Um, so we have uh, a non-government organisation that's funded by the government to, to do widespread TV and poster mm. campaigns. Just as I was coming out of Sydney Airport, on the back of the toilet door was a Beyond Blue poster, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I used to worry all the time. I didn't realise it was anxiety and it was treatable and it was this lovely Indian woman... Um, with mm. a, a bit of a tag phrase. And uh, so, the, you know, the messages are getting across uh, to Australians to try and reduce the stigma of mental illness. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a very large... But in terms of services, the first port of call is your general practitioner. And in the last decade, there was a lot of work to upskill GPs in IPT and some of the other brief short-term therapies mm -hmm. um, I and some of my other colleagues were involved in, in training GPs and, and having follow-up group telephone supervision. Um, so that meant, because GPs are where people go, and so they maybe when it's detected, they could go on and, and have some <coughs> sessions with their GPs. That was a big breakthrough um, in treatment. We do have a, in the public health system, we have quite a range of services. Uh, there's a lot more in the the urban regions, and Australia is a very big country, so it you may, can be quite patchy in more rural and remote areas. But inpatient units, where I live in Canberra, we have a state-of-the-art, stunning psychiatric unit, um, uh, which is a pleasure to be in because it's such a lovely environment, and they've been very thoughtful about what needs to be in that sort of a setting for people in crisis. And we have a whole range of, uh, you know, adolescent services, um, eating disorders and the perinatal where I work, um, older persons. I mean, it sounds like a lot. Yeah. We also recognise that there's a whole lot of unmet need, that, that it is a big problem in Australia, the, the incidence of mental health problems. One in five Australians um, have a common mental health disorder in any one year, which is very, very high. Um, so the services are not enough to meet the need. And when you say that one in five Australians in any one year may, may have this... Mm. A common mental health a, disorder a common like common depression, anxiety, 
right. substance use. Yep. Right. Um, is, do you think it's possible to come up with that number because the assessments are so thorough throughout Australia? Um, or we you, know, you say it's quite high, but I, I mm. wonder whether other countries may have similarly high numbers and just aren't doing mm. the yeah. assessments. Uh, well, we have a national survey that was rolled out in 2007 and we're also about to do a, a new child and adolescent one to look at the incidence in children mm -hmm. because many disorders start in childhood as well. So it is based on surveys of the adult Australians. Yeah, terrific. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, let's go to uh, Dr. Patri and ask you to tell us a little bit about the Canadian system. <laughs> I, I can talk about, you know, the Quebec situation. This is not the whole Canada, but uh, I was quite surprised, you know, talking with uh, Rebecca. We have uh, so much uh, similarities or, mm. you know, to share, comparing, you know, for the states. But uh, we are neighbors, you know, in the states, and we, uh, there's so much differences, and you are the end of the beginning of the world. Yes. So uh, <laughs> 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 <and> we... <laughs> And we have uh, so much similarity. So uh, as uh, Australians, you know, in the situ Quebec situation, everything is free, you know, and uh, uh, every patient has the right, you know, to uh, get the um, state-of-the-art, uh, you know, psychotherapy or care, you know, even if you're a prime minister or, you, or a sewer. So uh, uh, everybody is, you know, on the same line, you know, and... Um, so there's a, a universal program as well. So, but uh, our situation is quite different because we don't have real guidelines, you know, in terms of psychotherapy or providing psychotherapy for those people who are suffering from major depressive disorder. So, uh, because we all know that CBT, cognitive and behavioral therapy, as well as the uh, IPT, interpersonal therapy, are, um, are in guidelines, APA guidelines, and are recommended, you know, for uh, treating major depressive disorder. But uh, there's no, uh, you know, standardization or rules, you know, for uh, providing those uh, psychotherapy. So this is the main reason why uh, in Quebec, especially in my clinic, with the help, uh, with the uh, wonderful help of my colleague, a psychologist, Diana Allaire, and as well as our colleague from Montreal, Dr. Jean Leblanc. And we have uh, this project, you know, transferring knowledge, basic IPT knowledge, and maybe you have the same project for LA, uh, ILA psychotherapist. And uh, to the first-line psychologists working in uh, community health organization, which is... Uh, kind of, you know, place or clinic, public clinic, where everybody can go there. And also, uh, the Quebec situation is quite different from uh, other provinces because now we have Bill 21. The Bill 21 is, is now is, uh, it's for uh, providing best practice and for uh, in psychotherapy. This is a frame, you know, for those people who want to practice psychotherapy, because we had lots of people, you know, coming from psychology, from uh, occupational therapy, from, you know, everywhere, and uh, who owns, you know, the title of psychotherapy, but they, we don't, we didn't know anything about their training, about, you know, uh, the, uh, the supervision they got. So, and this bill is very specific, you know, in terms of continuing medical education, in terms of accreditation, in terms of the requirements and hours of training, and, you know, who trained you, and so on and so on. So, I think it's a good way, you know, and it's a good, it's, uh, it's a good way to set the table for uh, uh, giving, you know, more mm -hmm. state-of-the-art care, you know, for providing more uh, state-of-the-art care mm -hmm. or for, uh, for people suffering from major depressive disorders. Mm -hmm. I hope you don't mind if I ask you a question that relates to American politics, but <laughs> one, it, it's, a, it's a very, uh, there's a big divide in this country between people who do believe that we should have some version of, uh, it's, it's not single-payer health care, but people here call it Obamacare or the the, the new health care um, law that has passed, there are some people who feel that it's intrusive being forced to get a policy. Uh, and um, 
even though the cost will be low, we, we know what the reasons for requesting that everybody be in this same pool mm -hmm. together, everyone has access, and so on and so forth. But you're, in your countries, mm -hmm. you have been able to come to an agreement that it makes sense for everyone to have access mm -hmm. to yeah. a public health care system. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some small fee connected with it, but everybody mm -hmm. has access. How many years did it take for, was this a big fight within your own countries as it is here? You know, in our, our system was founded in 1967, I think. But there was no fight, you know, uh, because, you know, we all know, and maybe in Quebec we have this principle that we are uh, all equal in front of God. So, and, uh, and uh, everybody deserves, you know, good, uh, good care. So um, no mm. more for mm. these people, mm. even if you're poor or rich, you know, in terms of health, I think. Everybody deserve it, you know. Everybody deserve, and everybody deserve good, yes. good care also. Mm -hmm. So I think you have kind of. Uh, I think Australians symmetry. find it hard to relate to that that attitude, that you're paying for somebody else's care. And um, I remember when we visited America a few years ago with my sons, and we ran into this lovely couple, and they were, the conversation turned to their health care and. Uh, they were saying that um, they couldn't afford to... One of them had actually severed his finger or something in an accident, and he couldn't afford to um, go to hospital. And I remember my son's being quite shocked and appalled at this mm. um, because of the expense. Mm. Um, but I think we all benefit. I mean, I think the attitude of Australians is that if, if people uh, get access to care, it, it benefits all of us because then people aren't losing uh, their work, they're not having to go to work and leave children unattended, it's, uh, they're not um, um, losing their jobs and then robbing your homes. Uh, like it, it's a better society when people are looked after. Mm -hmm. um, so we find that hard to relate to. Mm -hmm. uh, hmm. Well, and, and of course <laughs> here at university hospitals, um, this is a hospital that takes indigent patients yeah. and um, you know, you do your best to serve everyone, I'm sure. Are there, uh, within, within a, a physician's workload at university hospitals, can, can you see every patient who is, who is needing the kind of care you could offer? We make it a point in our clinic to try and see every single person that we can. Yeah. Um, however, many people can't pay for service. And, and I think in the States, one thing that has mystified me is that people don't understand that, that those of us with insurance are paying for care yes. for people who don't. We're not paying it in the mm -hmm. form of taxes. We're paying it for it in the form of higher insurance rates. So mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. kind of a pay mm -hmm. me now or pay me later. Right. And I think we also struggle in the States too with making a decision, and it, it, I think you've clarified that very clearly, uh, about whether health care is a right yeah. or not. Mm -hmm. If it's a privilege, then it would make sense to ask people to pay for it. But if it's a right, then the, the idea that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Care is free, especially at point of service, mm -hmm. is uh, something that we should implement. Mm -hmm. If I could make one last editorial oh, comment too, yes. Uh, I can't tell you how much time I end up personally, not to mention the rest of our staff, waste on paperwork with 10,000 different insurance companies and just yeah. trying to get people through the system, which mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about so much. Mm -hmm. So it would be so mm -hmm. much easier from a, a provider's mm -hmm. perspective. Anyway. Right, right, right. And if I could add to that, I think in Australia we recognise that just how much disability is associated with mental health and being unwell. Mm. And so in, in around 2006 they introduced another scheme which allowed GPs to refer people with mental health problems, depression, anxiety, sleep problems, substance abuse, a whole range of things, stress, uh, referred to a, uh, a psychologist or an allied health and the vast majority of their bill would be paid for under Medicare. Um, so for a while there, you could go along to a psychologist for um, up to 18 sessions of IPT. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunate, fortunately or unfortunately, a whole lot of people started coming out and needing <laughs> care and yeah. the, the, yeah. The, the bill climbed and mm -hmm. the cost to the government. So they've cut it back to 10 sessions. Mm -hmm. um, it means it's a bit short, we complain about that, but it is something yeah. that uh, helps. Um, and a lot of people after the 10 sessions, uh, some psychologists actually see people at a much lower rate or even for free or, 
or try to space it out and mm -hmm. hope that Christmas is coming up soon <laughs> so they can uh, roll over to another 10. But yeah. it's, it's a big improvement. Mm -hmm. um, well, and I guess that's what we can hope for here in the states too. That you know, little by little, there become there come to be more providers all around the state, and and um, and that maybe we'll find a way to provide the kind of mental services that we psychiatric services that we really need to have for our population. But for today, this has been a wonderful conversation, and thank you so much for sharing thank your you. your uh, country's uh, situations with us. And thank you, Scott, for managing this entire program for us. Uh, we've come to the end of our series on interpersonal psychotherapy. I'd like to thank Dr. Scott Stewart just next to me here, Dr. Rebecca Ray in the middle, and Dr. Simon Patri for being with us. The entire three-part series on interpersonal psychotherapy, as well as all World Canvas programming, can be found on the Hawkeye Network, on iTunes, and on International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>